It is good to be together. Man, you could be at home reading the paper, drinking coffee. And it blows me away every time I drive up that people are coming to Door Creek Church. Why are we coming? Because we need hope. And we uh, need encouragement. We need to hear from God. And so God has a good word for us today. Uh, before we jump into the message, though, I just saw Darren, who just led our team to Haiti. And we're grateful for their safe return and for their great ministry. So they were serving kids there with our international partners, Mission of Hope, through a VBS program. There was this mobile clinic, and they were helping administer some things to encourage people in terms of their physical health and well-being. And then they prepared over 2,500 meals to go to an orphanage to feed these orphans. And so what we know is when we travel overseas, we always see the world that God loves. And our eyes are opened by the world that loves God, and we're changed by that. And so we're really grateful for our students, high school and collegians who went and served and gave up a week of their summer to do that. And grateful for those of you who have just supported them in prayer and through your generous giving. So it's good to have you guys back. So um, we're going through the storyline of the Bible. If you're a guest here today, um, that's what we've been doing since January 1. We're chasing through the storyline of the Bible from the very beginning and to the end. We're kind of in the middle of the Old Testament right now. If you grab your Bible, and go to that first page, you know, the table of contents. Let me just kind of take us through, because it's hard to sometimes know, how does this hold together? There's 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different languages. How in the world could we say that there's a united theme here? Well, there is, and it all holds together in the person and work of Christ. And uh, the promise of Christ comes in the very beginning. So those first five books where we started are called The Law. Sometimes the Pentateuch, which just means the five scrolls. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We have the story of creation. We have the story of man's fall away from God and the rebellion, our rebellion. We have the story of God's promise that he's going to send a savior who's going to crush the enemy. We have the story of God's rescuing his people out of Egypt into not just a land and a place, but into a relationship. And so we have the beginnings of this covenant relationship where God reminds us that we've been created by God for God. He says, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. And the people say, we're in. We want to do that too. So then you get to the history. So from Joshua all the way down to Esther, 12 books of history. The first nine are the history of God's people in the promised land. The last three, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, are the history of God's people when they've been taken away into exile, a foreign place, because of God's judgment for their disobedience to God, and it's the history there. And the history books, lots of lots of years, hundreds of years, and they keep going back to two fundamental things. God is faithful, and we are not. So God is faithful to his promise to be their God, take care of them. And they're not faithful, like us, not faithful in being people who said, we're going to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and we are going to love our neighbors ourselves. So that gets us to the middle section where we've been hanging out since in May. So the wisdom literature, sometimes called the books of poetry. So Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, right? So these are the books of wisdom. So wisdom, biblically, is not an intellectual category by itself. It deals with our mind, but fundamentally, wisdom, biblically, deals with a skill, a skill for living rightly in a twisted, upside-down world. So wisdom is God's gracious gift to help us navigate life in this world that is broken and fallen and twisted and all messed up, 
And we're part of that. And how to live rightly and loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself. So that's wisdom literature. And fundamentally, wisdom literature has this repeated theme that we're going to live rightly if we're related rightly. And it's found in this whole phrase called the fear of the Lord or the fear of God or to fear God. When we hear it, it sounds like be afraid of God. That's not what it's saying. Yes, reverence. But in addition to that, it's seeing God for who he is. And then it's responding rightly with a reverent, affectionate, humble obedience. And that relationship transforms life in a fallen world. And that's what Solomon ends his book Ecclesiastes with. We're going to finish up Ecclesiastes, even though we're only going to get through chapters 5 and 6 and only have done the first half of the book. But he teases out a couple of things. Number one, that life under the sun is broken, it's meaningless. You can't find meaning and purpose and satisfaction and security and significance through work, through pleasure, through intellectual pursuits and knowledge. You can't do it through that. And you, you can only find it through a relationship with God, which is how he ends the book. At the end of the matter, the conclusion is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. So grab your Bibles. Ecclesiastes is in the middle of your Bible. If you get, need to go back table contents to find your way, that's all good. That's how we all started when we were new to the Bible. So Ecclesiastes after Proverbs chapter 5. So what he's going to do here, picking up on the theme of fearing God, he's going to say there's two things you need to be aware of. There's warnings that he's going to sound to say you've got to watch out for pride. Pride of a specific sort. And it's good for us to catch up with it as we're seated in this auditorium at church. Religious pride. So you got to watch out for religious pride. Because it can dupe you into thinking that you're a lover of God, that you trust God. But all you, all you really have is a bunch of words and a bunch of religion. And that's not fearing God. That's not a relationship with God. Don't be confused by that. That's verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. And then from verses 8 all the way through chapter 6, verse 6, he's going to warn us about the love of money and how money, though we so often can turn to it for significance, for security, for happiness, for joy and contentment in life, it can't deliver. It can't deliver. So he's going to sound those two warnings, and at the end of the day, he's going to talk about this awesome reward that God has for you and me. And it has to do with peace, and it has to do with contentment, with a life that no matter where we're at, whatever we're doing, we actually could be preoccupied, not with, with what's wrong, not with what I don't have in life, but preoccupied with a joy that flows out of that relationship. So that's where we're going. All right. So let's start with this first warning, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Why? God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares. And many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not to fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, Fear God. 
trust God. See him for who he is. Reverent, affectionate, humble obedience. So he says, as you prepare to meet God, whether you're going to church, whether you're just going to have some time alone with God, as you're doing life with God, just, just understand that it's easy to get tripped up on your way in. None of you were checking, right? Because you walked through those doors a few times, right? There's, there's not a threshold there. But he's saying, actually, there is a threshold. It's not physical. It's something in our life. It's pride. It's religious pride that can trip us up. So what does the scripture say about pride? Well, it's Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before the fall. And here's the problem. We can know that's true. We can smell it out. We can see it. We can have experienced where we've been proud. And man, if we take a face plant. But we can know all those things and, and still be careless about it. And there could be a carelessness in our approach to God. So you ever slip on the ice? All right. Was it because you didn't know it was slippery? No, of course not. So I got to tell you a story. So when I was in, high, in college, um, Sophomore year, I, I took this elective class, uh, Beginning Acting. So, the, the, seriously, the guy's name, the prof, was Don Rainbow. And Doc Rainbow had this troupe that used to go USO around the world, and every year it did this summer-long tour, and it was called Professor Rainbow's Wonderful Caravan. People went to Bethel College to go be in Rainbow's Caravan. But I'm just taking his, art, his uh, beginning acting class. And in the acting class, he says to me one day, hey, you ought to try out for Caravan. I said, well, I was never thinking about that, but if the guy who runs Caravan says I should try out, I probably should try out. So I tried out. I made Caravan. It was great. It was awesome. And guys, I'm, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I wore dance slippers for the first time <laughs> in my life. Why am I telling you that? Because on our schedule all the way to the West Coast and back, there was one particular night that was circled in my mind. Gothenburg, Nebraska. You been there? All right, two people. Great, Gothenburg. Well, um, the reason I was excited, the reason it was circled in my mind is because Sarah Baker, I, I was like crazy about Sarah Baker. This isn't Laurie Peterson. This is before Laurie Peterson. This is Sarah Baker. And she lived in Stromsburg, which is just down the road from Gothenburg, and she was going to be there. So I was excited, and I was going to bring my A-game, right? So we get to the junior high auditorium where the show is going to be. And they tell us, hey, be careful, because they've just refinished the wood stage. Just a whole new thing of varnish. I'm going, okay. And then I'm out there with my dance slippers, and I go, whoa, it's really slippery. And then somebody says, oh, you know what you do when it's a slippery stage, right? You go, I have no clue. I've never worn these before. All right. You just put Coke on the bottom of your slippers. So I got some Coke, and I did this because the stage is slippery, right? But on that opening number with the big kit moves and the big dance moves, I was all in. I had forgotten about it. And I went up high in that opening jump. I know I got white man's disease, but I still went really high <laughs> for me. And when I hit the stage, I forgot that it was really slippery. And I went down like that. But if you weren't looking, you didn't see it. Because I did get up that fast. <laughs> so you can know pride can take you down, right? But it can still mess us up. So he's going to talk about, here's what religious pride could look like. This, this kind of thing where... We're quick to speak. There's a carelessness in our approach to God. 
we forget that God is God, but he's in heaven that we are not. And we go barging. Now, he's not saying that you can't barge into God and say, I need help right now. He's not saying that. But this, this kind of overarching, careless approach, forgetting who it is that we're approaching. Annie Dillard has this great quote that says, man, if we knew, if we knew who we were approaching, we would, we, the ushers would give us crash helmets on the way into church. He's, he's God. He's God. There's another way it manifests. Um, we're not listening. Remember he says, what does he say right here? He says, go near to listen. Now here's what we don't understand about that word. When that word is translated in the original language here, it's the same word for obey. Listen and obey. Hear it, heed it. That we're going in and we're careless. We, we, we don't have this kind of longing to hear God, to see God, to meet with God. And we're not really concerned about what we do with what he says about how we ought to order our life with him and with others. There's this carelessness about it. A humble person approaches God with humility, with submission to meet him, to listen to him, to follow him. And he says, you know, if words mark these religious words, and it's so easy to do. I don't know if you're new to following Jesus, but I'm just going to tell you. Sometimes we get weird in the church, and we got this little, we got this little jargon. You go, what, yeah, what, what is that jargon? And you go, i got to get the jargon. It's not about jargon. It's not about words. There's a whole bunch of people that were into jargon, that were into, into words. They were into doing the right things. And Jesus said of those people, you're a bunch of hypocrites and you look all pretty and nice on the outside, but honestly, you're like whitewashed tombs. It's death. There is nothing alive with you in God at the heart level. And we can dupe ourselves into thinking, I fear God. I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there is no humility. There's no awe about who this God. He's just my buddy. He's just my friend. And I get duped into thinking I'm on with God because I'm doing the right things and I'm saying the right things. But it's window dressing. He says it's a charade. And be careful because we can get duped by it in our own life. We can make these promises. This is another example, verses 3 through 6, where we make these promises to God, usually at a time when we're in a jam. Have you seen Dunkirk? Trust me. Those three, 400,000 soldiers were making some serious deals with God on the beach. If I get home, if I, I get my feet on the soil under those Dover cliffs, God, I'm yours. My whole life is yours. All my money is yours. I'm going to, trust me, there's a whole bunch of that. We do that. And what does he say? It's better to fulfill what you promise, and better yet, don't make a vow. Don't make a vow to God. Why would we make a vow to God? Well, some of us would make a vow to God to impress other people. I think Ananias and Sapphira said, hey, we made a vow. We promised that we're going to sell our land and give it all to the church. So here it is, Pete. Use it for the poor. Use it for the homeless. Use it for anybody you can. Yeah, the whole thing. Ananias, Sapphira, we're doing it. You see that? We're doing it, all of it. No, they weren't. They were, they were, it was a show. They didn't give it all. Oh, so we could do it to impress other people. We could also do it in a way that we would hope that God would think better of us. Okay, so 
God, I'm going to make a promise that I'm going to do this for you in exchange. You're going to do this for me. Like, you're going to get me out of this bad jam right now. So I'm going to make a good deal with you so that you'll be favorable towards me. Treating God as some kind of, you know, this lucky charm, this rabbit's foot. So I'm down on my luck, but I'm going to make a vow so I'll be, you know, out of this tight spot right now. He says, don't let these pious words mislead you. Don't don't let vows be your downfall. The one who fears God guards his steps. We know where we're going. We know who we are before. He is God in heaven. We're on earth. He's in control. We are not. He's eternal. We're from dust going to dust, Solomon says. So that's the first warning. Ouch. Don't think we're in a good place just because we're talking the talk. Humility. All right, so the second warning begins in verses 8 following and has to do with this whole thing of love of money. The Bible talks a lot about love of money. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why does Jesus spend so much time talking about money? Because there is no better way to understand what we're really trusting in, a better way to understand our heart than understand how we value, how we hold, how we think about, how we handle Money. There's this direct correlation, Jesus says, between my money, between my wallet, and my heart. And when Paul's talking about it in his letter to young Timothy, the pastor there in Ephesus, he says, hey, remember those who want to get rich? Remember this. They're falling into temptation, and it's a trap. It looks like a shortcut. It's the most, why does God talk about money a lot in the Word of God? Because it's the most convenient thing to turn to for understanding how it is that we're going to find joy, where it is we're going to find security, where it is I can find my identity and significance and contentment in life, where it is where I can sort out why am I here anywhere. Anyways, it's the easy go-to little God, little G, idol. He says it's a trap. Though it promises, this is the way to do it. And, and we look and we see people, and money can do a lot of things because money isn't inherently evil. It's the love of money that's messing us all up. But we can look and go, man, I think it does. I think it really does that. And if I had this, I could get this. And if I had that, then I'd be okay. I'd be good. He says it's a trap. It leads us into foolish and harmful desires, Paul says. It plunges people into ruin. So just think about you being tied down with like a hundred cinder blocks and being thrown in the middle of Lake Mendota. You get it? It's going to take you down, keep you down. Game over. It's going to ruin you. Some people eager for money have wandered. Ah, that's a really interesting thing. So when you wander... It's, it's like it slowly happens that you lost your way. You, you wandered. You, you lost your way. Your affection for God got supplanted by your, your, your affection for money and the stuff that money can buy. And over time, you didn't even realize it. But man, we've lost our way, chasing it. And we're empty, piercing ourselves, he says, with many 
Greece. So I ran across this amazing painting by the Flemish painter Quentin Mat Matsis. Let me say his name wrong. Matsis. So, uh, born in the 15th century, died in the 16th. And it's this, it's called The Money Lender and His Wife. So look at the painting. So here you got this, this guy, right? He's, uh, he's got uh, a pile of pearls. You can't see that bottom left, but that's what's on that little black circle, that velvet. There's some pearls. He's got a, a pile of coins. In his left hand, he's holding a little scale. On one side of the scale, he's got a coin. He's assessing the value of the coin. He's looking at it. Then there's his wife. She's got a book. The book's open, and it's either the Bible or it's some kind of devotional reading. She's about to turn the page that has the Virgin Mary holding Jesus, God's Son. Celebration of the Incarnation, God's love for us. But she's distracted by what? The coin. It's this great, great painting. It just says that, that's, that's the battle. Even with you know, our attempts to worship God, we can get distracted by this other stuff, by money. So he starts talking about why we shouldn't pin our hopes on money, why it is that he would sound the warning and say, don't love money, don't love money. Here's why, verse 8 and 9. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So what is he saying? When we love God, when we love money more than God, we're going to love money more than people, and we're going to take advantage of all the people we can, especially those that we have position and power over. He's not talking about the position and power that we personally have in a person's life, like chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He's talking about systemic stuff. He's talking about in a district. He's talking about officials where one person takes advantage of those below him and then the one over him takes advantage of him and the one over him takes advantage of them. So at the end of the day, the person who likely is that worker in the field that brought about the harvest is the one that's completely overlooked and shortchanged and left out in the cold because he's weak and powerless. So not only can we not love God, he's saying, we're completely out of position to love other people because we're in it for ourselves. We're not positioned to serve. We think this is our stuff, that we're the owner, that we're not supposed to steward this stuff for the good of God's mission in this world. He goes on. Sounds the first warning right here in verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is, sleep, is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands, right? There's never, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. That's what he's saying. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. 
And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness. He's describing this lover of money. They eat in darkness, all alone, with great frustration, affliction, and if, if frustration mounts into anger, right? Anger. So the first warning, someone says, money can't ultimately satisfy. Money can't ultimately satisfy. It's never enough because it was never meant to be enough. When we take the good gifts that God has given us and turn them into ultimate things, we turn it into something that we trust, we're banking on, it becomes a God in our life. It's always going to disappoint because God never intended it. He never intended anything but himself. So he says in chapter 3, verse 11, right, that he has placed, God has placed eternity in our hearts and money and possessions and, and wealth and all the stuff it can buy doesn't fit, can't get through that space. But we try. John D. Rock Rockefeller, you know, he was like the wealthiest man alive at the time. And he was asked how much money was enough. And there's this classic response, just a little bit more. Or how about Mr. Burns, Homer Simpson's boss? Homer says, you're the richest man I know, to which he replied, yes, but I trade it all for more. What happens? Verse 11, yeah, more, more money, the more stuff. And the more stuff, the more of those get consumed by other people. And what, what happens is, you know, we, we've, we've got this and we've got friends and it's like the prodigal son, man, he's spending the cash and he's got this wake of friends that just love partying with that guy. This is awesome. When the money runs out, so too the friends. So he says it, it won't satisfy. It can't satisfy. He gives us another reason. He talks about it leads to anxiety and sleeplessness, right? In verse 12, the sleep of the labor is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So just think about it. the worker. He's working hard. He doesn't have a lot, but he's got enough. And he sleeps well. And then his boss, who maybe has millions is up tight, tied in knots. Wonder if he's going to lose it. Wonder if this investment's going to go away. He's consumed by it. At age 53, John D. Rockefeller was the world's only billionaire. So get this. It's the world's only one. There's a lot of them now. The only one. But he was so just tied up and worried about his wealth that this is what he ate. This was what his standard was because of his stomach being in knots with anxiety and all the worries of all his wealth. I mean, he could have caviar every day. Think about what you could eat every day if you were a billionaire. And here's what it was. Ready? For breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. A glass of milk and a stack of saltines. Are you kidding? He said, don't love money. You, you, you make that the ultimate thing that you're trusting in for security, you're going to find out real quick that it can't promise you that, and it's going to make you anxious if you pin your hopes on that. He said it could turn you into a greedy person, and that greed could bring about where, where you, you self-inflict harm. Yeah. And the harm is 
there's nobody in your life because all you've been doing is, is grabbing and getting. And, and there's no room for people. It's like that guy in chapter 4, verse 8, who's this wealthy guy. He doesn't have a brother. He doesn't have a son. He's got no one to pass it on to. And it dawns on him, what am I doing? I'm working like crazy, but there's nobody to give it to. He's all alone. Was he all alone because he was busy? Maybe. Making a buck? Was he all alone because he was greedy? I don't want to share it with anybody. It's mine. I want it all. And those are the people you want to be around. I mean, think about how hard it is just to be around someone and you have lunch with this friend. Every time you have lunch with this friend, you go, whew, I'm glad that's over. Because you, you weren't asked the question. They just dumped on you and told you about them the whole time. It's all about them all the time. Does that attract you to that relationship? Not at all. You live a greedy life that might be marked by a hard worker. You harm yourself. You know, when kids are growing up right now, but their dads are saying, you're so picking lazy. And the son's saying, Dad, you don't get it. I don't want to be like you. I don't give a rip about the things you care about. I've seen it. I wanted you. Not all this crap. Darkness. Alone frustrated, angry. That's where it ends, he says. These warnings can't satisfy. leads to depression, anxiety, sleeplessness. leads to greedy hoarding. And he says in verse 14, by the way, it's not dependable. There's no guarantee. Past performance is no guarantee, is it? They say it all the time. 2008's happened. 1929s happen, and then it's gone. You don't even have anything left to leave to your kids. Whereas Proverbs 13 says, the righteous man lives to, leaves it to his grandkids. You don't have it. It's all gone. Not necessarily because you blew it, but it's just how it is in a twisted, broken, fallen world. It's gone. So he's sounding the warnings about loving money. And what he's saying then is the flip side of it is, is love God more than anything, supremely. That he's the only one who's dependable. He's the only one that satisfies. He's the only one that can give us peace and joy. Love him supremely. And we ask ourselves, is Christ enough? Do we have an undivided, loyal love and devotion to our God and to our great Savior, Jesus Christ? Have we lost our way? We lost our way. Well, in chapter 6, he gets to what could be the fifth warning. It sounds a lot like the first. See if you hear it. It talks about its inability to bring contentment. I've seen another evil. So I'm in chapter 6, verse 1, right? I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth. So we just note that. You, you have wealth. Oh, let me just remind you, we are wealthy. You are wealthy. I know you don't feel like you're wealthy. I know you could tell me five reasons why you're not wealthy, but you go to Haiti this week, this year, you go, oh, I'm wealthy. You go to India, you go to Africa, you go to places where half of the world lives on less than three bucks a day, and you're going to come back and you go, oh, my word, I'm rich. Say that, I'm rich. 
That's hard, isn't it? Go say it to your friend now. I'm rich. No, I'm serious. Go say it to your friend. I'm rich. You, you, we're rich. Why does that feel so weird for us to say that? We are rich. And what is he saying? That's from God. It's not a bad thing. What we do with it could be. But if God has blessed us, and we have, we just remember, it's not because we work my tail off for it. I'm smarter than most people. I work harder and faster. Than, no, it's at the end of the day, he says it's from God. The earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24. And everything in it, it's all his. It's a gift from him. That's what he says. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. That, too, is from God, right? Contentment. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless. A grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children, live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Speaking of the stillborn, it comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does the man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. It's not going to matter. So this man has all he could want. But one thing, contentment. They say that, that our struggle with materialism has developed a syndrome. It's called affluenza. Do you have it? I mean, verse 4 is just saying this is the ultimate bait and switch. You start off, you're convinced money and wealth is going to make you happy. And you die lonely and empty. No satisfaction. An inability to enjoy what your busy hands have accumulated. There's a better way. And the better way is found in that relationship. That's the reward. So the two warnings, religious pride, love of money, what's the reward? It's this gift from God that's a result of this relationship with God that is contentment. So, so he talks about it. We skipped it, but we'll go back. Chapter 5, verse 18. This is what I've observed to be good, Solomon says at the end of his life. This is appropriate for a person, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their work, in their toilsome labor, under the sun, in this twisted, fallen, messed up place, during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Underline that. Preoccupied with joy. Is that you? And if it is, why? Because that's awesome, that you're preoccupied with, wow, God has been so good. You're preoccupied. Is, is it because it's just sweet right now? You've got the love of your life. You've got the job of your life. You've got the degree. You've got that, whatever it is. 
It's like, this is sweet. This is sweet. It is that preoccupation with joy in something as fleeting as the circumstances of your situation right now? Or is it tied to the unchangeable nature and character of God and his desire to be our father and to be our God and to be in relationship? He says, you can have that. And some of us go, that is a cruel joke because I love God. And there isn't any of that in my life. This is a joke. Well, I think Solomon at this point said, well, you better just double check. Maybe you don't have the joy because you don't have the joy giver. Maybe you think you do, but it's really a bunch of that religious pride. It's a lot of this. It's a lot of doing for God to gain his favor. God's already done it for us on the cross, right? Maybe it's because our, our hands are like this or like this and not like this. Maybe we're, we're acting like owners when it comes to what God has given us in terms of material possession and wealth. And we think it's all ours. Maybe there is no sense of cheerful giving. Maybe it's just like, oh, no, I don't know, I'm supposed to do this. Why didn't you get those offering boxes? Out? Why are you always talking about money here? God, All right, here's my 10. Just leave me alone. Am I a cheerful giver? So there's people in our families. They got needs, right? There's friends. They got needs. There's people in our community. They don't, they don't have a 401k have an emergency saving. It's like, they may not even have a paycheck. Are we generous? Maybe we think we're at a place that we're really not. And the grace of this book is, is not to just show us where we can find meaning and significance and satisfaction and joy, but to show us where we can't, and maybe we've been duped into thinking it is in work, it is in pleasure, it is in wisdom, and, and, and it is in money. And he's saying, I tried it all, I tried it all. So he ends the book in chapter 12, and he says, hey, remember your creator in your youth. And so he's talking to, he's talking to you high school students. He's talking to you kids that are old enough to understand what I'm saying right now. He says, don't forget God. Remember, remembering God doesn't mean like, oh yeah, I remember there's a God. No, remembering God is like remembering your birthday or somebody else's birthday they didn't just know that was your birthday they responded they sent you a car they sent you a gift they gave you something they remembered it guys when we remember the anniversary it's not just that we know the date right no we celebrate it right we do we don't just remember oh yeah there's a god there's a god yeah no we live in light of that reality we remember him in our youth and we're a lot of us you're gonna hear me right now you're young you're gonna hear me don't love money because it's gonna disappoint you you're going to, I'm going to try it. <laughs> well, you can learn. Uh, here's what I can tell you. The world that we live in never contradicts the word of God that we've been given. And you'll, live, you'll learn these lessons one of two ways. Through the mistakes of people that you know in your life that have been down that road, or you're going to learn it yourself. He says, remember me in your youth. And then he says in verse 8 of chapter 12, remember me at the, at the twilight of your, in other words, remember me all the days of your life. So let's go back to that painting by Mansus, because there is a mirror on the desk, and you can't see what was in the mirror until you see it blown up. So it's reflecting 
this window in the shape of what? A cross. And there's this man who's reaching his hand out, right, to the bottom part of the cross. Most people think Mansus, Quentin Mansus, was just painting himself into that. And see, that's 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 when we start to get it right. That, that's why we, we begin to go, well, of course I can trust this God, that he's good and in control. Because out of his gracious love, he sent his son in humility to hang naked on a cross because he loved me and you. And when I remember that, when I live in the shadow of the cross, when I hang on to the cross, that, that cures me of my piety, of thinking somehow I can make a way to God to impress him when it was so bad that there wasn't any other way than to Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, to live 33 years as a humble servant and to die like a criminal on a Roman cross. And that changes everything. Just like, listen to this. You, you, just imagine this. You're drowning and you're saved by someone who dies saving you. And it's a son of a family that you've gotten to know, and you visit that family. Do you think there's ever a day where you walk into that living room, when you walk through that door, and don't remember the sacrifice of their son to give you life? The cross. The cross is the great cure for my pride. It's the great reminder of God's love for me. And so I can love this God because he loved me first. And the cross shows me all of that. So you can receive the gift by surrendering your life and your loves to God alone. Have you done that? Have you wandered from that? Jesus said, come unto me, all you weary, worn out, I'll give you rest. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. I've come that you might have life, full, free, abundant, today, forever. Let's pray. Father God, we bless you for your good word that cuts us, it cuts through this veneer of pretense where we think we're fooling ourselves and others into being in a place that we're not. So forgive us for our carelessness before you. Forgive us for our deal-making nature. Forgive us for turning into you into this lesser image of who you are. And heal our hearts from this disease of wrong affections. Lord, you are the great giver. May that be seen more and more in our lives in this church. Lord, may we be a people who are quick to listen, slow to speak. People who need and long to hear your voice. 
people who desire with all that we have to heed what you've called us to do for our good, we believe, and your honor, and for the good of a world that desperately needs hope that is only found in your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand as